Hello, and back again, welcome to Expanding Eyes podcast. I hope you're enjoying these podcasts and our trip through Homer's Odyssey. I certainly am. I look forward all week to doing this podcast, and that's really not just advertising. I genuinely do. I have always enjoyed talking about these works for something like 33 years. I used to teach them in a classroom, and I am not done talking about them yet. I feel that, yes, on the one hand, these are examples of those works by the so-called dead white males, the old works of the old regime. And when I talk about them, whether in the classroom or here, I try not to avoid talking about the problems with them, the sexism, for example, but at the same time balance that against things that I feel, at least, are just as valuable as they ever were, even though these works, the Odyssey is something like 2,700 years old, and I'm not sure we've even tapped the total depth of it yet, let alone exhausted it. As I, I hope to go on to suggest even within the next half hour or so. We've been following Odysseus for a couple of weeks now through the section of the Odyssey known as the Wanderings by the Scholars, which is books nine through 12 in which Odysseus recounts to the Phaeacians all his exploits since he left the ruins of Troy and tried to get back home. And it's still going on 10 years later. And, it's, and then we came upon this adventure, and then we came upon this adventure, and there is, after you've been reading it for a while, the question arises in the back of your mind, is there any unity to this? Is there anything that unites all of these seemingly disparate, heterogeneous episodes? Is there anything that threads them into some kind of a whole? I feel that there is, and as I said in a previous podcasts. I make use of some material from Joseph Campbell's Masks of God, where he also feels there are some thematic and symbolic continuities, and I weave it together into a perspective of my own upon these wanderings. And Campbell starts with, okay, let's at least number the episodes as a start. And he contends that there are either 12 or 13 episodes in these four books, depending on how you count. He might be pushing it a little or uh, trying to make it fit a little because there is a certain element of the arbitrary here. Do you count Circe as one episode or two because they return to Circe? Do you count the Wandering Rocks episode as at all because it is merely a description by Circe of an obstacle that in fact they do not choose to go in that direction and go by way of Scylla and Charybdis instead? 
whatever. Kimball is shooting for a 12 or 13 possibility for possibly symbolic reasons. And I think that numerical symbolism may be in there whether or not the episodes were that way in Homer's mind, whether Homer was numbering them himself. They do line up with the traditional 12 labors of Heracles or Hercules. We talked last time, and this is where actually I'd like to drop back and start again and carry it through to the end. We have spoken of the central episode of the wanderings, if you do count them. The episode of Hades or the Underworld is smack dab in the center of the episodes, episodes before it, episodes after it. And it is also a turning point. And the very last thing that happens to Odysseus in the Underworld is that he speaks to the ghost of Heracles and gets the supreme compliment. We should not underestimate the hugeness of the compliment that Heracles gives to Odysseus in the underworld. Ah, you too, he says, destined to grinding labors like my own? Well, Heracles, and forgive me if I fall into using the Greek version of his name rather than the Latinized Hercules that more people are familiar with, but Heracles, with his 12 labors, was generally regarded as the greatest of all the Greek heroes. He was a member of the Greek version of the great generation, the generation actually before the Trojan War, in which there were heroes that were even greater than the Achilles and Odysseus generation of the Trojan War period. And of all of those earlier heroes, Heracles was regarded as the greatest, so great that the gods gave him a unique fate. What Odysseus talks with, with is only one of the two identities of Heracles after death. One identity is a shade in the underworld like everybody else, like Achilles and Ajax down here. Uh, Heracles is a shade in the underworld for all his greatness, and yet the gods admired him so much that they gave him a double fate. There is an eternal identity of Heracles up on Mount Olympus, immortal with the Olympian gods, lifted up, a mortal lifted up to the level of the gods, uniquely so. Odysseus does not compare with Heracles in that way, and in fact, it may be that the contrast is in Homer's mind because Odysseus, as we recall, rejects immortality on Calypso's island. Nonetheless, Heracles himself compares him in his labors, and traditionally, as I say, there were 12. We will follow Odysseus out of the underworld at this point into the second half of the wanderings, which are much more briefly recounted, so much so that they're bunched into 
Book 12 contains the whole second half after the underworld, beginning with a return to Circe's island. That's where they departed from. That is where they now return. And there is a remarkable moment depending, here we go again, depending on your interpretation. I always tell students that in interpreting any texts in the humanities, the right answer, in quotation marks, is only the answer that gets the consensus of the most authoritative readers. There is no right answer in literature about any text. What is the meaning of King Lear? What is the meaning of Hamlet? What is the meaning of an episode in the Odyssey? Interpretation is a human act. It depends on logic and evidence, but logic and evidence differ according to who you talk to. Some evidence, so-called, convinces some people and arouses skepticism in other people. And that's how it is. If you want the right answer indisputable, you have to go to math. But here, we are the interpreters, and we interpret as best we can, the most logically, the most factually grounded, and the most rhetorically convincing. That's the right answer. And it all depends, your interpretation depends upon how much weight you feel that a certain item or items of evidence in the text is able to bear. And here's a good example of that. Book 12 opens, they sail out of the underworld into the open sea and return to the island of Aia, the island of Circe. And Practically, the first thing it says is, Summering Dawn has dancing grounds there, and the sun is rising. And if you're on the alert, if you're an alert textual reader, you note something. Wait a minute. That means the east. Sun rises in the east. But they had sailed west, north by northwest, to get to the underworld traditional location. And Circe's island was in the west at that point, and then they sail further west from Aia. Now it's in the east. Who moved the island? It could simply be a textual glitch. There are definitely textual glitches in the Homeric poems quite a few of them, as a matter of fact, any number of which the scholars themselves have no real answers for. This could simply be a textual anomaly, and yet it suggests something. And the, you know, William James, the psychologist, spoke of tough-minded and tender-minded types of personality. And whenever you get interpretation, whether it's in science or whether it is in the humanities, you're, you're never gonna reach agreement on practically anything. And the division will often fall roughly into tough-minded and tender-minded interpretations. 
due to the personalities of the people interpreting. Tough-minded people are the skeptics who say, no, I want hard, indisputable evidence. Don't give me any of your speculation. That's just bullshit. You can say anything that way. And they have a point. We don't want people who can just say anything. We have far too much of that right now in the United States, much of it circling around the word vaccine. But on the other hand, you have what William James called the tender-minded, rather odd term, but more flexible-minded interpreters who are willing to entertain some possible notions on the grounds that, as I just said, you don't get absolute certainty in the humanities. Go to math, and maybe not even there. A book I read once about mathematics, the theory of mathematics, was called Mathematics, the Loss of Certainty. So we interpret as best we can, and we interpret according to what we feel might bear the name of actual evidence, west or east. In relationship to the sun, the sun was associated with the myth of Heracles, at least at some points in the traditional interpretation of mythology. The why were there 12 labors? Some people said it's because there was a link between the career of the sun in the sky over the course of a year, moving through the 12 houses of the zodiac, all of those constellations up there. And of course, Heracles is up there, and so are any number of the creatures that he met during his 12 labors. The sun moves through those houses in the course of a year and begins again. The sun also moves through a daily cycle where it rises in the east, reaches an apex at the zenith at noon, declines into the west in the afternoon and evening, and seems to disappear in the far west, and it gets dark, and then all of a sudden rises again the next morning in the east again. How did it get there? And in some mythologies, and this is not new anthropology, Milton knew some version of this in one of the choruses to his drama, Samson Agonistes. He utilizes it. In some mythologies, the idea was that the sun went underground. In other words, descended into a kind of an underworld, a series of caves and labyrinthine caverns to rise again in the east so that the sun was, in a sense, dying and being reborn. That link between the course of time and human time in particular and the course of the sun, humanity, the imagination has been aware of that for as long as there have been human beings, perhaps. It depends on, and here we go with the lesson of interpretation again, how much weight you put on interpretation of some of the symbolism, if that's what it is, in the first graves of the human race, the Neanderthal graves, 
the first Homo, uh, genus Homo, species of the human race, thousands upon thousands of years ago. Some people contend that there is both solar and natural rebirth symbolism in those graves. The dead being put facing the direction of the rising sun, flowers, because we still can find the pollen in the graves, flowers tossed in the graves, just like as we do with funerals now, because flowers die but are born beautifully again the next spring. The dead placed in a, sometimes in a fetal position as if, what is a pun in the English language, the tomb were also a womb. And as I say, <clears throat> some people doubt this, and the controversy is ongoing. But there's no doubt that later on, these associations took place. Here, we have solar imagery. We have the imagery of Heracles and his labors that later on, at least, was associated with the solar imagery. And is it perhaps attached to the labors of Odysseus? The choice is yours. All we know is that there is this detail of Circe's island being now where the sun has its rising, and that's where they end up. Odysseus has gone down into the underworld, as Heracles did. One of his labors was to go into the underworld while still alive and come back out again, a unique feat until Odysseus duplicated it, and come back out again. Does that mean anything? Maybe it's suggestive, at least to me. It suggests death and rebirth. And that is one of the great themes, of course, in world mythology. And it may be a deep theme underlying the imagery of the whole Odyssey coming <clears throat> forward most explicitly in the wanderings where we depart from the realm of realism and go into a series of episodes that resemble myth and dream more than they resemble anything realistic or historical. But I think the entire career of Odysseus is framed against a large pattern of death and rebirth. Not literal death and rebirth because Odysseus has rejected that kind of thing. He will not become immortal the way that Heracles did. But there's another way to die and be reborn. And it is a way that is applicable not just to the myth of the hero, which Odysseus definitely fits, that too, but it may apply to all of us. And this is more imagery that is possibly latent in the texture of the Odyssey, but spreads outward and links up with much imagery in mythology as studied by comparative mythology and anthropology. The hero will sometimes 
go down into an underworld and fight with a monster or monsters and come back out again triumphant, often with a treasure or boon of some sort, and often go undergo at least a symbolic death or rebirth. That may be happening on some level in the imagery of the wanderings. Odysseus has sailed west only to arrive at the east again in the dawn. But some other things have happened as well that link up with that. He has lost his old identity and is in the process of beginning to gain a new one. Explicit literal immortality is one thing, rebirth all over again. That's one way of talking about this mythological pattern. And yes, that does happen. And of course, that is a promise of Christianity that there will be a death, but there will be a rebirth into a literal immortality. But there's another type of immortality. It's comforting to think that yes, we can be recycled, that's, that's good, that's a comforting. But there's something else that may be of a universal appeal beyond that type of immortality. Everything we do, every phase of our lives is in a manner of speaking, a death and a rebirth to a new identity. And this is true of all of us, not just the special heroes who have been granted a special fate. Anthropologists have studied at length what are sometimes called the rites of passage. You can buy whole books about this, and it's fascinating. Rites of passage are, within traditional societies, with traditional mythologies, a symbolic lifestyle, not just of the great heroes, but of everyone whose lives move through phases, and I'm going to just, to exemplify it, I'm going to cite four of those phases. Societies vary almost infinitely, but four logical phases that a human life in any society might go through are birth, adolescence, and transition to adulthood, midlife, and death. And at each point in traditional societies, there may be, it varies, but there may commonly be rituals that are transition rituals, rites of passage from one part of your life to another. And every single time in those four phases, it is death and rebirth imagery in which you die, not literally, but die to your old identity and go on to the next phase as a new identity. At birth in Christian culture, we have the imagery, for example, of baptism. A child is born, but is immediately reborn, baptized, goes down into some, some versions of the underworld are marine rather than subterranean, goes down into the sea, into the waters, mimicking the passage of the Israelites through the Red Sea in the Old Testament, 
Baptism is the symbolic equivalent in the Christian New Testament and are reborn as a new but different identity, spiritualized identity. In the coming of adulthood, there are a whole series of rites all the way around the world that have been intensively studied, and again, you can buy whole books on this that are fascinating, called the rites of initiation. These are the rites of passage in which children become, adolescents become full adults. Boys achieve manhood, girls achieve womanhood. The ones that are best known are the masculine rites because they're more public. And in those rites in many cultures, the boys have to endure ordeals, some of which may even involve mimicking a death and rebirth, like being halfway buried in the pit and dug back up again. But to endure ordeals, some of the North American uh, Native American people, the male rites of initiation were just outright torture, horrible sounding things. But self-proving, a boy had to become a man by proving that he was courageous, that he could endure pain and danger and fear and become a man. We think of, in the Odyssey, when we think of Telemachus, he does not have rites of initiation. His society is anarchistic. It is not governed at the moment. And yet he is going through a kind of impromptu initiation simply by the events of his life that will turn him into a man, which is, as sometimes said, what young men in our society have to do. We don't have proper rites of initiation, as some people feel, either for young men, so that young men who have to prove themselves, manhood is not automatic, it's not chronological, you have to achieve it, you have to earn it. And some young men become so insecure they spend their whole lives still feeling that they're trying to earn it, overdoing it. Therefore, rites of initiation in which you die to your old identity as a boy or as a girl and become a full-fledged adult in the tribe or culture, a man or a woman. Midlife has the fewest rituals, but maybe that's why we so often speak of what we call a midlife crisis, in which, if you think about it in our society, what is a midlife crisis? It is the need to change identities by people who have completed the early adult part of their lives by the middle of their life, at least with our long modern Western lifespans now. People have achieved the two traditional achievements of adulthood to find a mate and have a family, and also to have a career or some sort of accomplishment or task or achievement. By midlife, people have done that. Children are raised. The job is, if not over, at least you've reached your apex and 
you're not going to climb or go on to any further th achievements. Now what? And people sometimes crack up, of course, as we know. They get very confused at this point. They don't know what comes next. They sometimes look back and see that they have not done certain things, that they have not lived certain aspects of life that we need to live in life. And so there's a lot of flailing about, sometimes genuine crack-ups, divorces, and peculiar behavior of people who are out of control for a while. But the idea is that we have to become something new in the second half of life going towards old age. Our society has by no means figured out what that is. One of my heroes, C.G. Jung, has an essay called The Stages of Life, in which he makes the assertion that has always resonated with me, that we don't know in our culture what the purpose is of the latter part of life. We don't know what to do with old people. Old people don't know what to do with themselves. Just, you know, entertaining yourself and waiting to die is not an adequate, meaningful role. What's going on? And here is Odysseus in midlife. He's no longer the great warrior of the Trojan War. And he is having to go and become a new self. The imagery in the wanderings and the underworld section is clearly that of death and rebirth to a new identity. To the Cyclops, Odysseus says, I'm nobody. Everybody calls me nobody. And on the surface level, it's just this folktale joke, outwitting a none too smart monster. But he does become nobody. He loses everything. The curse of the Cyclops is to lose everything, lose all companions. And by the time he's washed up on the shores of Scoria to the Phaeacians, he has lost everything down to the clothes on his back. And he's got to gain it all back again, though with a difference. So I think this imagery is in there. Whether you count one thing as part of it or not. I think it's in there, and it is a cyclical death and rebirth. The career of the sun being dying and being reborn eternally is one set of imagery for it, to which we might add, and Joseph Campbell does, there is another cluster of imagery having to do with the moon. There is a solar calendar of 12 months but there was also a lunar calendar of 13 months of, and I'm oversimplifying, but roughly 28 days each because the moon goes through 28-day phases. Nothing, I assure you, is inevitable or universal in mythology. There are always exceptions or reversals in some other culture, but very often in mythology, Solar has had masculine associations all the way down to the Sun King and whatnot. Lunar has often had feminine 
associations. And one obvious reason for that is not inevitable, but one obvious reason is both the moon and women have 28-day cycles associated or connected with fertility. The 13-month lunar calendar was often associated with agricultural civilizations. 13 months, 28 days, two calendars, solar and lunar, 12 and 13, there are the numbers that Campbell was looking for, out of sync. You can count time either way, but they are out of sync. Every 19 years, they finally coincide on one day. And how long has, been Odysse how long has Odysseus been gone? 19 years, beginning of the 20th. Speculative, yes, sure, but suggestive and associated with Circe, who may, I've suggested this in a previous podcast, may, along with Arate in a very different way, show some vestigial symbolism of the old goddess cultures that preceded the patriarchal cultures, like the Greek culture of Homer's time and Odysseus's time. The goddess cultures, we don't know a lot about them except that they existed from approximately 7500 BCE to the last surviving one, which was that of Minoan Crete, which was wiped out by a volcano around 1500 or 1550 BCE. But this cluster of cultures is characterized by artifacts of feminine Im imagery, thousands of female figurines, scarcely ever male. And the surmise is that these were religious figurines and that the religion had to do with the feminine and that some elements of this imagery might exist here and there in odd pockets of later texts as a kind of vestigial cultural memory. It's doubtful whether the goddess cultures were actually matriarchal with female rule, but they seem to have been societies in which authoritarian patriarchy was much less common. And the role of women much more egalitarian. So we have these goddess cultures, and is that being reflected in a good way in the Phaeacians with Arete, the queen who is first among equals, and in a more ambiguous way, the dark side of the goddess reflected in Circe with her quasi-underworld associations. Circe, the imagery is of pigs, and, believe it or not, a, the pig was a mythological animal. Why? You would not think of a pig as a spiritual symbol in our culture very easily, but why? Because they had underworld associations. They are creatures that wallow in the ground in the mud and there were pig sacrifices and so forth and so on. 
so Circe associated with pigs. Campbell adds one further association. We meet pigs again when Odysseus gets to Ithaca. First person he meets is his old swineherd, Eumaeus. And in one passage, rather strangely and enigmatically, Eumaeus boasts that he has not only kept his master's pigs for 20 years, but increased the flock until now there are 360 in the flock of pigs. Okay, why this oddly specific number? 360 in our culture is the number of a complete cycle, both in space, 360 degrees in a circle, and time, 360 days in a year, counting five days of transition that are sometimes called intercalendrical days. Full circle, significant, maybe, but the point is, the suggestion here is of this great theme of death to your old identity and rebirth to a new one, perhaps even in the imagery of death itself. Even modern funerals often will speak in the sermon and in the imagery of the service of death as a rebirth to a new, this time spiritual way of life. We will take Odysseus on from this through quickly through the rest of the wanderings and then on to Ithaca as we take up again next time. I hope this stop and not making any more progress on the plot but talking about the deeper themes has been useful in deepening what we've seen and what's to come. See you next week. Mm -hmm.